In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We started the first Sunday of Advent with the armor of light, reflecting upon how it is that the Lord gives us His light, His understanding, so that we can better know ourselves and where we are, so that we can better know our destination, where the Lord is sending us. Through His light, through His wisdom and knowledge, we come to this understanding. And when we uh, know how to act and how to walk, we have that protection of armor because we're walking in righteousness and we're saved from the consequence of sin. It's not just enough that we know the direction that we're going in. We have to desire to get there. And so we reflected on the second Sunday of Advent on hope. That is the desire that the Lord would place upon our hearts that gives us the daily discipline we need to walk according to that light. On the third Sunday, we talked about rejoicing and how once we have that hope within us, that knowledge of where we're going, uh, the Lord would give us a kind of deep sustaining joy that is a power of the Holy Spirit. And that deep sustaining joy is with us uh, through uh, hardship and through times of despair and, and, and through times of, of grief. Uh, it is not dependent upon the whims and the changes of our daily life that um, ebb and flow where happiness kinds of comes and goes. But joy is that true sustaining gift. And when we uh, experience that joy and we express it, we rejoice. And then uh, we are this morning talking about in that rejoicing who it is that we are truly rejoicing, what it is that we are rejoicing. And that is that God is with us. That God is Emmanuel. That is what we are rejoicing about. We are rejoicing that God has desired to dwell with his people. And we see that uh, stated, that desire to be with us, to be Emmanuel, in the prophet Isaiah. Here in the seventh chapter of the prophet Isaiah, Israel is an incredible time of, of challenge and, and difficulty. This is the time you'll remember, about 800 B.C., uh, when the Civil War is still raging. Uh, the, 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 the kingdom of Israel has uh, devolved into civil war after Solomon. There's the northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital. And that southern kingdom of Judah has a royal family uh, that is uh, maintaining the line of David. The prophet Isaiah is a member of that royal family, which gives him a certain kind of access to the kings of Judah. And so he is able to go and speak to them in a way that other prophets are not able to do. As a cousin of King Ahaz, he's been having a back and forth conversation and Ahaz has challenged the Lord. Ahaz has tested the Lord and he suffered the consequences of that. And now Ahaz is saying, I don't want to have anything to do uh, with testing the Lord. And he seems to step back. And the Lord uses this opportunity through Isaiah to say, uh, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for a sign. We want to remember that a sign is not a symbol. Symbolism can be very important. Symbolism adds meaning and richness to our understanding of daily life. But a sign is so much more. Signs are evidence, right? Uh, sacraments are, are signs. They are evidence of God's grace. And Christ himself comes as Emmanuel. And he is a sign of God's presence. He is evidence of God being with the nation of Judah. And this is the promise that's given at this time of, of great hardship as the civil war rages and as this northern uh, empire of Assyria is about to gather their strength and descend upon that northern neighbor. So now the kingdom of Judah is threatened by not only their uh, partner in war, 
uh, Ephraim, which is that main tribe of the kingdom of Israel, but the Syrians. So these two enemies now are joined together, and very soon the Syrians are going to sweep through northern, uh, the northern kingdom and take it and rename it Samaria, and it's going to be a great disaster and further threaten the kingdom of Judah. So they are in real hardship. They are in real danger at this moment. And the promise that the Lord gives is that he will uh, be their uh, God. And so we read um, how it is that he's going to do that. We, we know that, that they're expecting the Lord to fulfill his promise to David, which was that his line would never end, and that this Messiah, this one coming um, in the name of the Lord, would, would, would come and would save the people. And so they're expecting somebody like David. So what kind of a person was David? David was a warlord, right? He was a great and powerful general. He led um, hundreds and thousands. He was victorious in battle. He was able to establish uh, the broadest borders of the nation. He was able to uh, go um, far to the north and far to the south. He was able to establish battlements and, and siege works. He was able to bring a great kind of prosperity and to get um, good kinds of terms with his enemies uh, and political expediency. And so they were able to live in a kind of safety and peace under David. And this is what they're expecting. They're expecting another kind of a warlord, another kind of a general and politician to come and give them peace. And then the prophet Isaiah comes and says, yes, he's going to come, and he's going to come as a child. And you have to think that the kingdom of Judah that Ahaz and those that were expecting some kind of a help would say, what? A child? That's not the kind of help that we're looking for. How is a child going to defeat our enemies? How is a child going to make us safe and secure? But this is the promise that the Lord has. He says that he will send a child and that this child will be a sign. Again, this child will be evidence of the coming of the Lord. And that the sign is the Lord himself. So he will be his own sign. The Lord is his own evidence. He will send not just an envoy, not just a, uh, an advocate. He will send himself. He himself will come and he himself will be evidence of his being Emmanuel. And of course, this, this promise of Emmanuel is a radical one. And, and we read these verses stated for us again, quoted in our reading today from Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, we see him quoting this same passage and Emmanuel gets translated for us. Right? The Gospel of Matthew says, Emmanuel means God with us. And this, of course, is fulfilling the plan of creation that the Lord has always had. The Lord's plan of creation has always been to dwell in creation. This is His plan when He creates heaven and earth and He makes the earth and he builds the Garden of Eden. He dwells within the garden with his people. When he leads them out of Egypt into the promised land and they're wandering in the wilderness, he dwells with them in the wilderness. He is in the fire. He's in the cloud. He is in the, the tabernacle that he builds and he later dwells in the temple. Right? His desire is to be with his people and to dwell in creation with them. 
And this is a promise and a plan that the Lord never abandons. He never abandons. He says, I will be Emmanuel. I will be God with you. And in case in reading the prophet uh, Isaiah, we think that these are kind of broad or general or symbolic promises, uh, we are given some very concrete historical identifications to know exactly when and where God becomes man. These are accurate historical pictures. And sometimes uh, we might be concerned or critical of a historical reading of, of who Jesus is because so many people have tried to use history to dismiss who he is, uh, but that doesn't mean that we dismiss history, right? We have to uh, read history and read and understand that uh, the Lord comes and becomes man in a specific time and a specific place. So we read about Caesar Augustus, we read about Pontius Pilate, we read about Herod, all of whom are people who uh, we know from other histories and other sources and their time and, and real place in history. We know about the city of Bethlehem. We know about Nazareth. These are particular places at a particular time. And the Lord appears to particular people, to uh, Joseph and to his betrothed wife, Mary. And that Mary is that virgin, now 800 years after the promise, on whom the Holy Spirit descends, and it is in her womb that God becomes man. God became man so that man might become one with God. And so he is, at that moment, with us. And he's with us in a radical way. He's with us in, in a transformation of creation. Sometimes we like to think of the resurrection or the Pentecost as being the only kind of ways that the Lord brings about salvation. But salvation is brought about at that very moment that God becomes man because he not only changes that flesh in the womb of the virgin, but he transforms all flesh and all creation. When God enters into creation, all of our flesh is changed. All of creation is changed. And now we have the possibility of having an intimate relationship with God, of knowing him and being with him and for us to be transformed for us to be transformed by his presence and his dwelling with us. The angel that appears to Joseph says what it is that Jesus comes to do. He says that he has come to save his people. And of course, this is the name of Jesus, right? We read at the very beginning of the verse, um, now the birth of Jesus Christ. And sometimes we read that as if it's a first and a last name. First name Jesus, last name Christ. And that's not the case at all. And sometimes we even hear this name used as a, as a swear word, which is a horrible thing. The best way that I can explain to people that don't understand how abhorrent it is for us who love him to hear his name used that way, the only way that I can uh, suggest that they come into an understanding of it is for someone to use a name of their loved one as a swear word. Their, their mother or father or sister or brother. It's abhorrent to hear the name of someone you love used in this way. But what's even more important is that this name is not first name, last name. It is a, a title, two titles that tell us who he is. Jesus is the name Joshua or Yeshua, which means God saves. This is the name of Joshua who leads the people from the wilderness across the River Jordan into the Promised Land. 
And Jesus follows that same path. You'll remember that at the end of his ministry, he goes onto the eastern side of the Jordan and he too crosses over the river the same place in the same way that Joshua and the nation did. And we can even extend this name of God saves, this, this mighty name of Yeshua, of Yeshua to those who call out to be saved by God. So the name of Jesus is to call out to be saved by God. That is what Jesus is teaching us to do in his person. He is teaching us to call out to be saved by God. Christ is Christos. It is the Greek word for anointing, to be poured over with oil. And you remember that the pouring of oil is done to the prophets and it's done to the kings. And it's the, the sign of that one who would come in the line of David. That he would be anointed as king over Israel and indeed over all the earth. So now this is the promise of, of Messiah, the promise of the saving like David to extend borders and to provide safety for the people of God to dwell. But while they might have been, and it makes some sense, expecting this warlord, he comes not to save them from enemies, not to save them from war, it says to save his people from their sins. At which point we might think, well, that's nice. I don't really need to be saved from my sins as badly as I need to be saved from other people's sins. Right? Isn't that how most of us think? Yeah, I've got some peccadilloes, a couple issues here and there. I fall into some bad habits now and again. But my real problem is these other people, right? We want our free will. We want our freedom to act and a little bit of leeway when things don't go our way. But what we really want is for God to use like a puppet those who are opposed to us, right? We want him to take away their free will. We want him to take away their power and authority, right? Stop this bad person from doing what they're doing. Make this other person do right. Make this country do what they're supposed to do. Make these politicians do what they're supposed to do. Make my neighbor behave the way he's supposed to behave, right? We want to preserve our free will, but we want the Lord to become a kind of a puppet master for all those other people out there. When what we're being saved from is our own sins which is the whole point of the Ten Commandments, right? That's the whole point. That we're supposed to love God and our neighbor in place of ourselves. We're supposed to be receiving His transformation. We're supposed to be confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, so that we can better love God and our neighbor, not so that we can get God to do what we want Him to do to make our lives easier. So that we can be transformed so that we can be his agents of grace and mercy, so that we can show the love of God. He comes to save us from our sins. And he does this by being with us, by being with us even in our sin, by giving us that power and grace, and by giving us clear instruction and direction as he gave to the husband Joseph. And we know Joseph to be the great man that he is because what do we read? He did as the angel of the Lord 
commanded him. That's it. He did what the Lord told him to do. And this is what St. Paul is talking to the Romans about when he says, yes, there, is, uh, there are miracles in your church. Yes, there is power and grace in your church. Yes, there is transformation in your church. But they were still not being obedient to the Lord. They were separating themselves, right? Jew and Gentile would not come together and worship. They were still saying, uh, yeah, but that person, right? I don't really like getting that close. And St. Paul beautifully, for chapter after chapter, talks about this transformative grace that the Lord bestows upon us when He comes to be with us. And he says, first we have to know what it is that we've been promised, what it is that's been fulfilled, and we have to know that by the reading of Scripture. Again, if we're not reading our Bibles every day, we're not going to know what we're hoping for. And if we go day after day without reading Scripture, and we find ourselves falling into despair and to hopelessness, we shouldn't be surprised why. When we read the Scriptures every day, we have a clear understanding of the promises of God, what it is that He's been promising. First and foremost, that He became man. God became man so that man might become one with God, so that we would be transformed by His resurrection. So we know that our hope is not anything in this life about being perfect and being um, without difficulty. Right? But our hope is in the resurrection, that these bodies are going to be made new. Right? That this whole creation is going to be made new, that He is the firstborn of the resurrection. Right? He is the first one that we all will be transformed in the resurrection. That is what we are hoping for. And in that hope, we receive grace. To do what? Grace just to sit on the shelf? Grace just to sit back? Grace to tell other people what to do. He says the grace to bring about the obedience of faith. Some silly people throughout time have tried to separate faith from obedience in the book of Romans. But you can't get past the first ten verses without reading that faith and obedience go together. Faith is being obedient to the commands of God as we see the husband Joseph do. And that is for those who are called to belong to Jesus. Called to belong. That is God with us. We belong to Him. We belong to Him. That's a deep, deep hunger that we have that sometimes we want to feed with fame or with pride or vainglory, right? That desire to belong, to be loved. And it is only perfectly fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. We belong to Him and He teaches us how to be obedient for those that are called to be saints. That's what we are called to be. We are called to be saints. These are saints, but not those only. These are saints. We are called to belong to Jesus, to do as He has commanded us to do. And when we listen to Him, when we are obedient in faith, we belong and we are His saints, His holy ones set aside for His purpose, to share His love and to be transformed by His grace. Now, does that mean that when we're in trouble, we don't call upon the name of the Lord? Of course not. 
We call upon the name of the Lord when we have a hangnail. Right? We call upon the name of the Lord when we stub our toe. Help me. Right? We call upon the name of the Lord when we're in traffic. When we're stressed at work. When we don't know what to do with our children. We call upon the name of the Lord when our family is in need and our neighbors are in need. We call upon the name of the Lord. He has promised that He will be with us in all kinds of hardship, in all kinds of trouble. And when He comes to be with us, He comes to change us and to transform us, to remake our hearts and our minds so that we can perceive His light, so that we can rejoice in His joy, so that we can be His hands and feet in love. Emmanuel. God with us. May he be with us and us with him this day and forevermore. Amen.